Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come like a wind and refresh and invigorate us. Come and open our eyes to see clearly and to know fully that you are risen, Lord Jesus. With eyes that are clear and focused upon that, Lord, change us from the inside out. Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, fill fill each place where we are gathered around the city and around uh, the world. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a blessed Eastertide to you all. To which you hear a resounding silence. And that's okay because Eastertide, that's kind of a churchy word, and we throw around a lot of these kind of churchy words. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm becoming more and more aware of how odd and strange I am as a, a kind of cradle Anglican who has all these weird words for things. And, and Eastertide's not technically an Anglican word, but it's one that we use. And, and you may be going, uh, well, I would wish you a happy Eastertide, Pete, if I knew what that was. And all Eastertide is, is the season of Easter. That's right. In, in, in our tradition, we uh, see Easter not just as a day, but as a season. In fact, it is a 40-day long season, just as the season of Lent is, and it goes from Easter Sunday right the way to uh, Ascension, the, the Feast of the Ascension, which is uh, this year on May 13th. And it's meant to mimic the 40 days that the risen Lord Jesus walked the earth and appeared to his disciples and to many others before he ascended to heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. And I was uh, here last Sunday, I was joking with some friends here uh, about Eastertide, and I was, I was uh, uh, starting to sing uh, about the Easter season with that um, song, like an Easter version of the 12 days of Christmas. Can you imagine if we had to do the 40 days of Easter, if we had to sing that song? How long would that take? Five golden eggs, four fainting guards, three women, two shimmering angels, I don't know, and the stone that's rolled away. Sing with me, would you? Another resounding silence. That song would take forever, 40 days of Christmas. But then again, I mean, 40 days of Easter. But maybe it would do us some good, though, wouldn't it? To have a bit longer focus on Easter. Long past Easter Sunday. In fact, I want to be, myself, an Easter person. And for us to be an Easter church, focused on Easter well past the 40 days of Easter tide. But we all know that we can be, as people, kind of like those Easter lilies that we uh, put around the base of the old rugged cross uh, there on the cathedral front portico. We're bright and, and fragrant 
on Easter morning and perhaps for a few days after, but it doesn't take long for the winds of life to blow us over and for our Easter blossoms to begin to shrivel and turn brown. But oh, to be Easter people all the days of our lives. What would that mean? What is unique about Easter people? What changes in them? What happens through them? So in order to explore these questions, um, I thought we would look to an Easter person to to get some insights. So we're going to look at Jesus' beloved disciple, John, and we're going to use his first epistle, this lesson that we had this morning from the first letter of John. If you want to open up your pew Bibles, if you're here, it's on page 1021. If you're at home, I invite you to open up your own Bible to 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and we'll look uh, towards uh, through till chapter 2, verse 2. So first of all, what do I mean by Easter people? Well, simply put, Easter people are those for whom the resurrection life of Jesus is not simply a theory. It's not simply uh, some ethereal concept, uh, but a tangible reality. And that tangible reality is in focus for them all the days of their lives. That's what it means to be an Easter person. That's what it is to be Easter people. I think it's noteworthy that in the various gospel accounts, there are pains taken to offer examples of the very physical nature of Jesus' resurrection. For example, in Matthew's gospel, you have uh, the account of the women grabbing hold of Jesus' feet. And then uh, in our gospel lesson this morning from Luke chapter 24, uh, he writes in verses 40 to 42, Jesus showed the disciples his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then there's John. And John, in his gospel, he really emphasizes the physicality of the resurrection. Uh, You have, of course, the famous encounter with Doubting Thomas, where uh, Jesus, in chapter 20 of that gospel, offers to Thomas to touch the marks in his hands and to put his hand in in his side. And then in chapter 21, there's the the, uh, appearance of the risen Lord Jesus on the beach where he, once again, does a bit of culinary work. And he, he uh, fries up some fish on the, uh, on the beach, and they have breakfast together. So it's not surprising that when we come to John's first epistle, he, he likewise puts an emphasis right at the top of his letter on the physicality of the one he refers to as the word of life. That is the incarnate word that he speaks about in the first chapter of his, um, uh, of his gospel. But now he's this, this word and he's got some, some, some experience with him. That he's met the word, he's lived with the, the word, he's seen the word die and he's seen the word of life rise again. Just listen to the opening two verses of the letter, and you'll hear John's description of Easter people. 
uh, of himself and others. Witnesses to the tangible reality of the resurrection life of Jesus. Verses 1 to 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's clear that John is an Easter person and he's writing to a group of Christians, most likely in, around the area of Ephesus, a pretty diverse and, and kind of interesting part of the world. And he's writing to a people, they need to have a refreshment, a reclaiming of their identity of, as Easter people. Their uh, belief in or their, their, their grasp of the tangible Easter reality of the manifest word of life. He wants them to be Easter people. And John recognizes, though, how easy it is, even for those who are just one generation removed from the actual eyewitnesses of the resurrection, for the reality of the resurrection to grow dim and a gathering darkness to, to kind of grow and, and to shroud the eternal life of the word of life. You see, there was at the time that John is writing an insidious heresy making its rounds through the Christian communities under John's watchful eye. It was likely some sort of early Gnosticism, uh, which was a teaching that spoke of there being a, a sort of special knowledge, a gnosis, that one could discover, and that knowledge would allow one to see this dualism in the cosmos, whereby uh, there are two worlds, the upper spirit world, which is good, and the lower material world that is bad. The upper world is light and uh, the uh, lower world is dark. The upper world is where God, who is pure spirit, dwells, and thus he could in no way have any contact with this evil material world. And so you can imagine how this heresy would, re would regard something like, for example, the incarnation, right? The doctrine that Jesus became man, that he is God-man. But not just that. You can also imagine how this heresy would think on something like the physical, tangible, material resurrection of Jesus. That would be hard to swallow. And the fallout from this heresy was not just a, an abstract, metaphysical, doctrinal error, just a heady problem. No. Because of that error, there were practical implications in the life of the person who followed this teaching and also in the community of people who collectively followed this teaching. So what do we think happens when we have people believing that to be a Christian means that you have received some kind of special knowledge that somehow transports you out of this nasty physical world with all its messiness and its brokenness 
and into the spiritual world with some perceived superiority there or at least some imperviousness to the messiness and the brokenness of the earth? What happens if that's your teaching, if that becomes your mentality? Won't it produce puffed-up pride with, with that either some kind of like decadent hedonism that just says, right, I can do whatever I want to. I'm good. I can do whatever I want to down here. It's not going to mess with me because I'm a spirit person. That's one thing that could happen. But I think the more common thing, and I think what was happening in, in this community, as it does in so many, is that you end up having this, this um, uh, requisite um, accusation and, and condemnation of others' flaws and, and a real ability to observe and notice every little speck in every other eye and ignore one's own planks, right? A blindness to one's own flaws, but a real clear understanding and focus upon everybody else's flaws. And that's going to produce, if that's how people are, that's going to produce a breakdown in relationships, is it not? And love and embrace will be replaced by loathing and accusation. And those early Gnostics, they use this language of darkness and light they believed that the goal of the secret knowledge was to leave the darkness of the physical world, right, and behind, uh, leave that behind in order uh, to gain the light of the spiritual world. And so John comes in, and he, he uses the same language. He uses this darkness and light language, but he turns it on its head as he describes what it is to be Easter people. Easter people are those who, verse 7, walk in the light. And to walk in the light, according to John, isn't to have some special knowledge, a sort of Gnostic eject button that one gets to push and kind of shoot out of all this gross earthly uh, darkness. No, John writes in verse 5 that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And he then writes in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So to walk in the light, according to John, is not to leave this world, but to be in this world and to have fellowship. And that first fellowship is with God. Right? We have it here in the first part, right? In verse 3. Uh, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's first to have fellowship with God, the one who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all, and who has not remained detached from the darkness and the brokenness of the world, but has sent His Son into this world for the purpose of creating that fellowship through the forgiveness of sin. How? By the washing of His very physical, sacrificial blood shed upon the cross. So to walk in the light is heavenly, yes, but it is also earthly. Just as Jesus is heavenly and earthly, but then what gives John assurance that Jesus' earthly death and brokenness of his body on the cross 
actually is heavenly at all? How does he know it's not just one more poor sap who just gets executed by the Romans? What's different in Jesus? It's the resurrection. That's what gives John this assurance. In Jesus, heaven comes to earth, and in his cross, earth is assumed fully, the worst of it, and in the resurrection, earth is made heavenly. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. Sins are forgiven as blood washes the sinner clean. In the resurrection, though, we see what God actually has accomplished as His Son has come into this messy, broken world and taken upon Himself all the darkness. The resurrection proves that it's true that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He is faithful and just to forgive the sins and cleanse the unrighteousness of all those who were walking in darkness. And they can have assurance that it's so because of the resurrection. So to be Easter people means to hold fast to the tangible reality of the resurrection and to live in attention. When we have that grasp and we really are looking at the resurrection as Easter people, what happens? Well, we have on the one hand a constant and radical awareness of our sin, who we actually are as sinners. And on the other hand, a constant and radical awareness of what Christ has accomplished in the cross and resurrection, that being the forgiveness of our sin and the fellowship that we gain with God into eternal life. But there's more. What I found interesting in what John writes here about walking in the light, it's not just about what happens in terms of the relationship between the believer and God. John says in verse 3, he's asking, he's talking about that you may have fellowship with us. And then in verse 7, he says that walking in the light, that is living in that tension I've just described, will cause us to have fellowship with one another. John is writing to people after the ascension about a tangible reality that they haven't actually seen or touched themselves, but he's writing to them as if they have and they will. But how can they, how can we as people who live after the ascension? Well, he seems to be saying the tangible evidence of the tangible reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus is the body of Christ. It's still the body of Christ. Look, touch the marks in my hand and put your hand in my side. It's still the body of Christ, but how? It's the body of Christ, which is the church. This body of Christ. The evidence should be a church full of people walking in the light in fellowship with God and shown forth by fellowship with one another. 
As John records in chapter 13 of his gospel, Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples. In other words, the world will know that you are my body by how you love one another. Your fellowship with one another will be the evidence of your fellowship with me. That's what he's saying. And so, what are my temptations? What are the temptations I see around me? What happens when the blossom on the Easter lily gets shriveled and brown? What happens? Well, I become kind of like these early Gnostics. I get a little air of superiority, a bit of moral arrogance, start manhandling stuff, people. And that causes schism and division, the opposite of fellowship. I move away from, and we point fingers at, and we stay cloistered off, and we tribal up in these echo chambers, yeah? Riding off, swearing off, deconstructing, unfriending, That's what we do, as if we had some authority to do that. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, as we begin to become so blind to our own sin. We walk in darkness rather than the light, and we are not Easter people. We're just people. But when we walk in darkness, no longer as Easter people, but as deceived people, we lose sight of this, this need to, to look to Jesus. And so fellowship withers and turns brown like the old Easter blossom. And instead of a church full of people living in fellowship with one another, you have people living sort of vicarious, uh, disembodied, disconnected, dissatisfied, dismissive, Lives. I'd prefer a church. I'd prefer my own witness, my own life to be full of living authentic and embodied and connected and grateful and engaged lives. And that's harder, but it's so much more beautiful and life giving. So fragrant and bright, full of light. It's the fragrance of Christ, the glorious risen Christ, as we are the body of Christ in the world. It's living with a constant and radical awareness of who we actually are as sinners and a constant and radical awareness of what Christ has accomplished in the cross and the resurrection. This is the life of Easter people living with the word of life. Amen.